This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, in a special edition of uh, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, we're going to be doing a series on Yogananda, and uh, Phil uh, has uh, written a book uh, recently that's now available, The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. So uh, rather than Phil and I interviewing somebody, I'll be interviewing Phil and uh very exciting. I got a copy of the book online, and uh, uh, Phil, of course, has been working, and I know this, having been working with him the last few years, very diligently on this book, and uh, it's come to fruition. Well, first, Phil, congratulations for completing the book. Well, thank you, sir. I am uh, very happy that it's almost out. Right. When this airs, uh, for the first time, it will still be in the um, pre-sales mm -hmm. phase, um, and it will be published uh, and available for purchase on April 24th, this 2018, of course, and right now people can pre-order it uh, online. Uh, Phil, okay, uh, obviously you have an interest in uh, contemporary spirituality, as do I. Uh, what motivated you to write a book specifically on Yogananda? Well, you know, I read his autobiography of a yogi in like 1969 or 70. Mm -hmm. And it was a very important book in my own spiritual path, as it was and has been and continues to be for millions of people. Uh, I never became a disciple of Yogananda or uh, officially a student of his, but I read his work a lot and just always had a uh, fondness for him and a lot of gratitude for everything I learned um, from his work, and um, especially the autobiography, which was mm -hmm. really a mind-blowing experience back then. And then when I was working on American Veda, and I was writing about all the gurus who came here. Um, he ended up having a whole chapter because he was so important. And in researching his life, um, the human story of his life, I found very uh, fascinating. Uh, and of course, I, I only had one chapter to devote to it, so it was a little frustrating. But so later on, after American Veda was out, and I was thinking about what to do next, the thought of uh, really digging in and telling his entire life story uh, in a book became uh, very appealing and it got carried away. <laughs> right. Now, in, in the book, Phil, you make a distinction between the man, Yogananda, and the guru, Yogananda. Uh, uh, how were they intertwined, and, and where would you focus? Well, it's not so much that I separate them, mm -hmm. but it's just that I chose to emphasize you know, the narrative of his life and his personality, which was fascinating, the events of his life, remarkable things happened to him. Um, I, I chose to emphasize that as opposed to um, the teachings that he brought out, because those are available. There are mm -hmm. thousands of pages of Yogananda's writings and teachings available, and there are some uh, 
sort of slim memoirs written by people who were disciples of his back in the 30s and 40s and 50s um, that talked about, you know, what he was like as a guru to them. Um, and so I wanted to tell the full human story because uh, mm-hmm. to me that was most fascinating right. uh, piece of it. And, and there was so much that had never been told before, not in his own autobiography or his uh, any of the memoirs that were written by people who knew him. How many folks did you were you able to speak to who had actually uh, uh, spent time with Yogananda? One. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Just one, because, you know, Yogananda died uh, right. 66 years ago, and um, only people who are rather old uh, mm-hmm. would have known him, and they would have known him toward the end of his life. Um, when I was researching the book, the uh, president of Self-Realization Fellowship was a direct disciple, but she was inaccessible. She was quite old. Mm-hmm. And um, and she died right before the um, I finished the book. And uh, But Roy Eugene Davis, who is one of the people we've interviewed right. for this series on Yogananda, right. so people can look forward to hearing our interview That's with fascinating, him. Fascinating man. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a direct disciple because, you know, he, he met Yogananda in the late forties when he was not even 20 years old, when Roy was not 20 years old. So, and he's still living. And, and so we spoke to him, I spoke to him and then we spoke to him for the show. And, uh, but I was not able to speak to any other direct disciples. There were only a few remaining and they were quite old and inaccessible. Right. But, but he was, uh, extensively covered. Uh, in the news, he was extensively uh, uh, written about, I, I would think, about by his disciples. So there was a lot of I- information there. Uh, when you went into yeah. uh, writing the book, uh, I, I, I'm sure you had certain expectations in terms of what you would be writing about or uh, what his life reflected. What were some of the things that surprised you, though? Um, there were a couple of surprises. One, um, and the main one, was how much um, he dealt with just human struggles mm-hmm. in his work, in his life uh, in America, starting and running a big spiritual organization that, um, you know, was, was the um, foundation for his mission, which, you know, to bring the teachings of his uh, Kriya Yoga lineage to the West. And, you know, he came in 1920 and uh, was very different from the era you and I were in mm-hmm. in the 60s when there were a lot of gurus. You know, the world was very different 40, 50 years prior to that. And, um, you know, being a, a, a monk with dark skin and long hair was uh, much more harrowing experience than it was later. And he was, you know, there was not much precedent for it. So, and then, you know, he was here through the roaring twenties and then the great depression and world war two. So, you know, there were hard times and he struggled a lot more than we think, you know, great yogis should, or, you know, because we, we have this illusion that things should be easy for them. But, you know, he was he had to deal with money and organizations and 
uh, you know, mortgages and uh, de- deprivation and, you know, personal hassles with, you know, the mm-hmm. people who work for him uh, much more than, than we realized. And I think that was one of the more endearing things that he was very, fairly open about all that stuff. He didn't hide behind, uh, you know, spiritual pablum. Right. He dealt with stuff and he was worried about money, right. You know, throughout his whole life, not money for himself, but money, you know, to make sure that his organization would continue to thrive uh, and you know, long after his his passing, so right. that was surprising. And um, I learned a lot about you know, the nuances of his life in India before he came here, which were you know I I didn't know about. And there were things like you know lawsuits uh, that um, you know were in the newspapers, and a lot of scurrilous accusations thrown at him, and a lot of. Um, really uh, difficult things to deal with and he you know you see in his letters that he he at times just wanted to give it up and go back to india and live a simple life as a monk Mm -hmm. but he never did a a couple of things that uh have always surprised me and uh what i've read about yogananda from motobiography of yogi and uh and and other readings i've done and certainly uh from what i've seen in, in in your book was that he uh came here in the late 20s, early 30s or whatever, and he... he 1920. He, okay, he was drawing big crowds even back then. Yes. And so I was yes. really surprised to see that. You see these photos of all these men and and, and, and nicely dressed women and men in, in suits and ties and all. So really, like, not what we... Uh, the hippies that used to go to the gurus in the, the 60s, <laughs> but this was straight-laced folks. And, and so that surprised me, uh, the, the amount of people... I yeah, came. me too. And then I also wondered, and, and maybe you could speak on this, there, are, there have been in, in the last few decades, especially certain Christian sects in the United States that feel very uh, threatened by uh, anything coming from the East, certainly anything that hints of Hinduism or meditation or uh, something that isn't uh, uh, directly in Christ, Christian lineage. Uh, did he get a lot of that uh, in his time teaching in the States? Yeah, uh, he did. All the gurus did. Mm-hmm. Vivekananda had it even worse, you know, because he was here, you know, 30 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, um, some of the other um, swamis who had come in Vivekananda's lineage in the early part of the 20th century, they dealt with a lot. There were um, the, the sort of heathen are coming. Uh, there were... Um, lurid sort of uh, fears of these dark-skinned uh, swamis hypnotizing American women to have their way with them and, you know, things like that. But there was also the usual uh, conservative Christian, you know, this is heathens and this is false religion and don't fall for it. I mean, from my research in the in not only this book and the real in in the life of Yogananda, but also in American Veda, there's always been two kinds of Americans, and and one you know the, the, he was filling auditoriums, he filled Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. and the Philharmonic Hall in L.A. and Symphony Hall in Boston. Uh, not at first, at first he you know he's lucky if he got a dozen people in a room, but then the reputation grew and he was filling big spaces. And those were the open-minded American people who, you know, want to hear about something new and are searching and will 
are willing to listen to see if something's of use. Um, and that spirit of open-minded inquiry has always, uh, you know, been one of the great hallmarks of American life. But there's always a backlash, too. Right. And so there are always uh, conservative people who are xenophobic and uh, uh, chauvinistic about their religion and you know, their ethnicity and and he, you know, he was a dark-skinned man at a time when, the, you know, the, one of the years um, in, in the mid-20s, you know, there were millions of Ku Klux Klansmen at that right. time. And they, they had marches in Washington with 40,000, 50,000 people, you know, and there was Yogananda. And, you know, he ran into a lot of that um, racial bigotry as well as religious big, bigotry and... Um, especially when he ventured into the South. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and by the sixties and seventies in our time, you know, things have changed considerably, but even the gurus in those, that era, you know, dealt with stuff like that. Right. And, and did his focus from the time he came to America to the time he died, did it stay primarily the same or did his focus change in terms of what he was emphasizing in his teaching and what he did? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in one respect, it was always the same, the mm -hmm. same basic message of, you know, what we think of as Vedanta philosophy or yogic philosophy, and the same um, Kriya Yoga uh, meditation and breathing practices and so forth, so with some nuances and in terms of how they were delivered and how they were, uh, who was allowed to uh, take which course and, you know, those kinds of the nuances changed over time, but he was one of the hallmarks of of uh, his work as a spiritual teacher was he 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 was very traditional and honored you know his lineage and upheld it and was um, um, very faithful to it as a as a matter of um, maintaining the teachings mm -hmm. and the methods. Uh, in in their uh, integrity, but he also realized he couldn't just do things the traditional way of one guru uh, instructing one person at a time. If he wanted to reach large numbers of Americans, if he wanted all those people who came to hear him speak to then have methods to practice and ongoing teachings. He couldn't be a guru to everybody. He was moving around the country. He was traveling, and, you know, it's a big place. And so um, he had to do certain innovative things that uh, not everybody uh, uh, favored. You know, the traditionalists uh, didn't like mm -hmm. when he would... Uh, put certain teachings in writing and distribute them by uh, with correspondence course, which would have been the then in the twenties and thirties the equivalent of putting things online. Now you know mm -hmm. you get mail mail order lessons, and that was an innovation and it was a departure from tradition. And you could see the changes also in his lecture titles when he realized, as a lot of other gurus did later on, as the ones we're familiar with, not everybody wants to know about 
higher consciousness and spiritual awakening and realization you know they want to know is what you're teaching going to you know help me earn my living is it going to uh, make me healthier is it going to you know make my marriage better <laughs> and so he started to address those subjects right, as right. well as the more abstract right and, and i also wonder uh, back in the day let's say in the 30s and 40s when he was giving these these uh, large meetings, when people came, was he was his emphasis to them, hey, take this uh, scientific teaching that I have of inner life, of meditation, of, of self-realization, and, and practice it on your own and enjoy it? Or was he asking them, come, I'm the teacher, come follow me. Uh, you don't have to become a renunciate like me, but uh, I need to be your guru if you are really going to progress spiritually. That's a very interesting question, because to a certain extent, he honored the guru tradition, but mm -hmm. he couldn't obviously have a personal close relationship with every student the way mm -hmm. he did with his guru in a small little ashram in India. Right. And so um, there was this sense that if you, you could take the lessons and learn from him, um, without uh, any deep major commitment and learn certain methods and so forth. But then there would be a moment where if you wanted to continue and have the advanced teachings and so forth, there was a commitment asked from the student. Mm -hmm. That was the equivalent of saying, I take Yogananda as my guru, and um, even if you didn't have much personal contact with him or any. Um, and so that that was a, co a compromise, you could say, um, in a way of keeping the traditional uh, guru-disciple relationship uh, alive, but also accommodating having to reach large numbers right. of people in different locations. Mm -hmm. Now, now uh, we often think of a guru, or it's a romanticized uh, vision uh, that many people have, as a, as a very just pleasant, happy, always person. Uh, sitting uh, and giving uh, talks uh, in in his day to day dealings with with, with his uh, his disciples with the people he interacted with, was there also some fire and fury there? Was uh, yes. did he have a personality that could flare up occasionally and be very uh, you know almost frightening to the people around him because he was <laughs> obviously very powerful? Yes, well the. That's a good insight, and you're probably asking that question because you've heard similar stories from other gurus. Yes. And he writes, he writes about that, about his own guru, mm -hmm. about how um, tough his guru, Sri Teswar, could be, and how demanding, and how much of a disciplinarian, at the same time, and mixed with this loving, gentle, all-compassionate nature. So, you know, they're uh, in a close guru-disciple relationship. It's not unlike a parent and a child where you have this unconditional love and concern and care. And yet, when necessary, they would say, uh, tough love. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Yogananda writes a lot about what he went through with his own guru mm -hmm. as his guru sort of shaped him into being a better human being and busted his ego. Um, and Yogananda was known to be that way as well at times. 
when you read his disciples uh, just talking about him, you know, the love is um, and and uh, devotion is uh, very powerful, very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, now, who knows? There could be could have been people who couldn't handle it and didn't like it and didn't like him and left. We don't have their memoirs. Right. But, you know, the people who stuck it out said, you know, he could be very tough on me, but I always knew that... Uh, he was doing it for my own good, and, and mm-hmm. I had lessons to learn and so forth. So you know, right. he had both sides. Now, now uh, there are uh, a number of organizations that uh, continue to propagate his teaching, the largest being the Self-Realization Fellowship. Ha- have you had cooperation from all of these groups in the writing of your book? And, and, and even if you had cooperation, were there certain things they emphasized or they asked of you to, to bring out or not bring out in, in writing the book? Um, I worked with all of the three, um, but SRF is, you know, the dominant organization. It's the organization he started, and that um, is the keeper of uh, most of the archives and the copyrighted materials and all that. And I, uh, they're in L.A., and so am I, so I spent a lot of time with them, and I had the cooperation in the research and they gave me feedback on um, early materials to make sure I was um, mm-hmm. factually correct. And um, they made certain requests. And, you know, I, I did my best to uh, be honest and fair and at the same time um, factually correct and objective. And I also uh, worked with the people from Ananda. Um, and uh, the people who the couple who runs Ananda will be uh, among our guests in the in this uh, series mm-hmm. of uh, four or five um, interviews about Yogananda, um, and we'll have a couple of SRF monks as well, um, and of course the, the smaller organization that uh, Roy Eugene Davis started. So I I was in touch with all of them. And uh, they shared with me what what they could and what was appropriate from their own uh, archives and their own knowledge base. And um, I, I, I had a good cooperative relationship mm-hmm. with all of them. And I also, you know, spoke to not organizations, but individuals who were um, opponents of those organizations. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, every guru has They're his, out there, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. So I, I've, I, I had, this, you know, I researched it as deeply as I could from right. all angles. Phil, one thing I'm very curious about, and maybe in your research you encountered this, and and it is now if somebody goes to a lecture on meditation, or or anything that has to do with, you know, Eastern philosophy or spirituality, they have some sense of karma and and gurus and this and that and whatever. The crowds that Yogananda must have attracted in the late twenties, the thirties, and forties—they must have come in there cold. Because even when I was in, in the sixties, karma, yoga, all these things—I'd never heard of, uh, you know. And, right. and and I was fairly uh, uh, more interested than the average person in Eastern philosophy. Yes. I, I'd done some philosophical study, uh, but these crowds—they must their, their minds must have blown, gotten blown because they went in cold. And all of a sudden, they're giving all this Vedic uh, uh, information and knowledge. 
and, yeah. your, your thoughts on that and, and, and how that well, comes uh, out in the book. Well, yeah. a few things. One, um, that's true to a certain extent. Um, but they also, a lot of the people who came didn't come completely ignorant, mm-hmm. but they came with a lot of more misconceptions then than we do now because we've been exposed to it so much. So they may have uh, read about Hinduism from some terrible book or uh, some treatise on yoga that was uh, badly translated or something. Um, so they may have had more to unlearn, but also there was more of a ground, uh, uh, ground lay, more ground had been laid than we think because Vivekananda had come in 1893 mm-hmm. and by the, by 1920, there were Vedanta societies in many of the major cities in America run by swamis who were sent here from Vivekananda's lineage. So they had a presence and you know, in American Veda, I talk about Emerson and Thoreau and the advent of the uh, schools of uh, what came to be called New Thought, you know, theosophy mm-hmm. and uh, unity churches and uh, all the, some of the other sort of metaphysical movements that started in the late 19th and early 20th century. So those were fairly popular and, you know, word got out. So that from you know yogananda would have drawn from those people uh people who had some exposure would have been among uh or at least a lot of curiosity but from what they've heard that 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 would have been you know right. the target audience and the people who would come around and then they would tell their friends and you know the right. women who would go to a metaphysical salon would bring their friends and the husbands and and things grew and so if he had a big event like when he his first event in LA was in a in a philharmonic auditorium at seats uh, 3000 and the LA Times said the place was packed and another 3000 were turned away wow so there were there was enough interest in you know sort of these exotic eastern forms uh, for people to show up either out of curiosity or because they they were really eager to meet uh, you know a, a real yogi because of whatever they'd heard or read um it was nothing like the 60s and 70s and certainly nothing like now i mean if a guru shows up in your town now it's you know so there's another guru showing yeah. up. <laughs> it's not a big deal yeah. and he's not about to fill carnegie hall yeah, but um you know it, it's fascinating but, it must have been a fascinating time phil in a, in a few minutes that we have remaining uh what are some other things you'd like people to know about the book uh, uh before they go out and, and get it and then read it well, um, if I were to advertise my own book, I would say um, those people who think they know a lot about Yogananda because they've read the autobiography and they've studied other uh, of his works and um, maybe read some of the other memoirs, there's a lot you don't know. There was a lot I didn't know. And um, so people will make new discoveries. Um, and they'll find out more detail about things, you know, p- parts of his life that they already knew about, but now they'll have more detail. There'll be a lot of fun discoveries. Um, and, and But there's one other thing I want to uh, emphasize, mm-hmm. and that is I told the story of his life. You know, it's a fascinating narrative from birth to death. But if you read it 
the right way, there are really good lessons to be learned from his life and his example that can help us in our own spiritual development and our own uh, sort of living our own life to in a full fuller way. And uh, I I made a twenty minute audio about that called the life lessons from the life of Yogananda to to make as a, a sort of free gift as an incentive to pre-order the book. So I may as well do a commercial for that now because it's, you know, I'd love to have mm-hmm. people hearing this go and pre-order the book. So if you go to my website, philipgoldberg.com, you can uh, get that free um, audio to sort of help you read between the lines of the book uh, if, if you pre-order it, that's but Philip there's Goldberg. a lot to be learned and a lot to be gained. Yeah, mm-hmm. PhilipGoldberg.com. Well, it's exciting and it's an exciting time. Uh, we uh, all look forward to, to to discussing the book with you more, uh, and uh, the book will be available beginning when? Uh, officially, April twenty-fourth, two thousand eighteen. Uh, get yeah. it. Uh, like your book, American. That <laughs> actually, if, if somebody reads his autobiography of a yogi. American Veda, and uh, the life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru, one will have a strong body of knowledge in uh, looking at and evaluating all things uh, spiritual. I I really think so, because, I I mean, uh, so much is covered, and uh, the life of Yogananda is a life everybody should know. It's very inspiring, especially when we look at the... uh, uh, the world as it is. So much of what the world lacks uh, was what he was offering it. So, uh, in my in my opinion, and so uh, yes, yeah. uh, read the book and, and get spiritually inspired, and maybe we can all work a little bit more to change the world. He did. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and that's that's one of the other things you'll find in the book. He spoke out a lot about uh, the events of the world around him. Um, I have a question for you, Dennis. Yes, we've done well over 100 or 130 or 40 interviews and yes. after each interview you and I have a discussion what are we going to do after well, this well I, I think after this one uh, <laughs> the, our listeners could hear me uh, uh, talk to myself uh, they, they take on a variety of characters I'm certainly willing to do that or uh, we could come up with something even more interesting or creative or we could just let it sit as, as is and, okay and, uh, it'll be the one one interview that does not have a discussion yes, after. Yes, but please write in uh, to uh, go to spiritmatterstalk.com. You'll see how to contact us, and we're happy to hear from you. And any questions about the book, uh, direct them to Phil, and uh, he will get back to you. So, uh, <laughs> great. All right, Phil, thanks okay. for your time. Well, thank. And, uh, I want to thank you and your co-host for having me yes, on. Yes, my co-host is the... the <laughs> Yes, my co-host who is now an interviewee. All right, till next time. All right, bye. Thanks.